All righty, good morning. Merry Christmas. I am excited to get to be with you. My name is Christian. I'm one of the pastors and elders here at Cornerstone. If you're new with us, if you're like early in town visiting family for Christmas, welcome. We're good to have you. Uh, uh, We're excited to have you this morning. Um, Like Todd mentioned, the next couple Sundays or next couple weekends will be taking a break from our series in Matthew to focus on the incarnation. And then on, on Sunday the 1st, taking some time for just a, a, a all-age family kind of prayer and praise service as we both mark the end of 22 and the beginning of 2023 as a family. So we're excited to do that. But for this morning, if you will, open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the Sermon in the, on the Mount. Um, we're in this ser- series through the Gospel of Matthew, which we're calling Apprenticing with Jesus. What does it mean to not just believe these things about Jesus, but to recognize that Jesus is calling us to a pattern, a model of life like his? That's what we're seeing in this sermon. If you need a Bible, we've got some ushers who would love to put one in your hands. But as we get going this morning, let me just remind you, the main point of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this famous section that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, it's all about what does it mean to live as citizens of God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, amongst the kingdoms of this world. Or the way I said it in one of the first weeks, this is Jesus laying out for us what the blessed, the good life, the happy, and and that's what that word blessed means, what that life looks like, not in a perfect world but in this same broken world that we live in right now that is longing for ultimate redemption to come when Jesus returns. We've been in the section in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is talking about this idea that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, to bring them, fill up their meaning, to, in many ways, like we see in this chapter, peel back the distortion and the corruption of the way that other people, the scribes and Pharisees in different groups had interpreted the law in ways that totally twisted God's intent to both return us to the heart of God's law, but ultimately not just show us the heart of God's law, but affect our hearts, transform our hearts so that not only do we look at Jesus as the one who fulfills the law, but the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us as we learn to walk in the way of Jesus, not in our own efforts, not somehow to earn God's approval, but because we now as this people of salt and light demonstrate to the world around us the character of God and his power to transform us. That's what it means to be apprentices of Jesus. Now, what we've been seeing over the last few weeks, we see this like in verse 19 of Matthew 5, What Jesus is addressing is the way that these different groups within first century Judaism had been relaxing the commandments of the law. The way Todd put it was they were making the demands less demanding. They were making the permissions more permissible and basically just making the law doable by hard-hearted people in a way that, again, obscured God's intent and left sinful desires unaddressed to just fester and grow unchecked. And after these words, Jesus then says his disciples are meant to do something totally different. Not relax God's commands, but to do them and to teach them. To demonstrate a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he proceeds from there in the rest of Matthew 5 to give six different examples of ways in which the scribes and Pharisees had twisted the law. And he goes through this pattern. You heard it was said this way, but I say it to you you this way. Last week, Todd walked us through the first two of those examples, showing how it's not just about murder, but also when we harbor anger and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness toward others. 
It's not only about the act of adultery, sexual sin that violates a marriage covenant, but even the lustful gazing and imagining of someone who's not your spouse. I, if you didn't get a chance to hear Todd's message last week, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to it. I thought he did a fantastic job walking through those difficult passages with a ton of just pastoral skill and grace and experience. I'm going to seek to try to do the same as we go into the next two sections here in Matthew ch chapter 5, where Jesus talks about divorce and oaths. But again, I want you to know off the front end that a sermon on these topics can only go so far. The reality is, especially when we talk about issues of hatred and anger and unforgiveness, when we talk about adultery, divorce, the, the pain of broken promises, the situations in our lives can be so complex and unique and difficult and painful that really the only way to walk through them is up close personally with brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow disciples of Jesus, who can help you both see and trust what God's word says and then seek to put it into practice. It is good for us to gather regularly on Sundays like this, for us to sing and to pray, for me to study and prepare and preach the words of Jesus to you. But I want you to remember this, the words of Jesus that we look at here are not only meant to be preached or heard or even just believed. They're meant to be lived out in honest, real relationships with other followers of Jesus. So as I lay out, my purpose this morning is to seek to lay out the main ideas of what Jesus is saying in these two sections, but along the way in a limited form like a sermon. If along the way, a whole laundry list of questions come up in your mind about how what Jesus says applies to the unique hard situations in your life or in the life of someone you know, just, just know off the front end, I'm not gonna be able to go to that level of detail. But that's why we have and are seeking to create more pockets of relationships, smaller groups of disciples where you can wade through the unique de details and navigate the, the uniqueness of the situations you find yourself in. This is why we have a care and counseling ministry, especially when you feel stuck or there's a lot of hurt to process through. This is why, as Cole mentioned beforehand, we have folks that would love to pray with you at the end of the service. This is also why from time to time, we'll, uh, Todd and I will record podcast conversations where we can jump into a much deeper level of detail than we can on a Sunday morning. And already, just so you know, when we get into issues of divorce and remarriage, we're planning already to record at least one conversation. It may be more like two or three where we get into more of the details of what the New Testament, what the scriptures as a whole teach about these ideas of divorce and remarriage. So again, as we jump into this, my purpose is to lay out the big ideas. And then in relationship with one another, let's work out what it means to be a community of salt and light in these ways. Amen? All right. So turn your attention. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Jesus says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, 
or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Again, this is the days before we had like hair dye you could buy at the supermarket. That's not what he's talking about. But don't just swear by your, you can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord that we're going to look at this morning. And as you can see, just from looking there, Jesus continues that pattern of contrasting what people have heard with what he says. It should also be pretty clear that what Jesus says first about divorce is kind of a continuation of what we looked at last week, of this idea of adultery and lustful looks, right? We can see that by the way that that word adultery is used two more times in verse 32. He's continuing to talk about what it looks like to be unfaithful in marriage. It's also pretty easy to see the way that what Jesus says about divorce connects with what he says about vows. Because in some ways, both breaking a marriage vow and breaking other kinds of vows, are also, it's all about the importance of keeping our word of honoring our commitments or, or, or the problems that arise when we don't keep our word, when we don't honor commitments that we've made, when we either make promises falsely of things we have no intention to keep, or maybe we make a commitment genuinely, but then later on we go, gosh, I really wish I hadn't done that. Is there a way for me to get out of this? I want out of a commitment that I made. I'm actually, what I'm gonna do in our time this morning, I'm gonna flip the order. Rather than dealing with divorce first, like Jesus says, I'm gonna go to oaths first. Because in some ways, I think what he says there is a little bit more straightforward and I would imagine perhaps a little less emotionally charged. But I think that it will give us a good foundation to then jump into what he says about divorce. So if you will, again, go here to verse 33. Remember, the main idea in this whole section, Jesus is confronting the way that the scribes and Pharisees had been relaxing, making more doable lowering the demands, hiring the permissions of what God says. And the way that they did this with oaths was particularly bad. Well, first, as we get into this, what is an oath? What's the purpose of an oath? Why do people add oaths, vows, swearing, not cussing, but swearing to, to bolster their words? It seems to me as I've looked into this that oaths, vows, those various ways people, human cultures have done this throughout history, Again, in order to add a sense of seriousness to the words that we make, to, to make people say we're taking what we say seriously, or to add a sense of trustworthiness, usually by appealing to someone higher or greater than we are. Like, I swear to God, or man, I swear on my mother's eyes, or whatever cheesy ways we've heard people say it, right? Or sometimes we make oaths by invoking consequences on ourselves of, of what will happen to us if we don't keep that oath. Like the classic one we learned as kids. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. If I'm lying right now or I don't do what I'm saying, I'm telling you, you can stick a needle in my eye. For all the times I said that as a kid, I'm so glad no one took me seriously on that. But again, why do we do that? Why do we use oaths to, and vows to add weight to our words? I think it's because often our words don't have much weight to them anyway. I would say, as you look at the biblical story from the moment in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, that Adam and Eve chose to listen to the lying words of the serpent, from that moment on, we as human beings have been prone to deception. It's like it's in our DNA. Prone to both be deceived and prone to deceive others. 
And it seems to me that oaths, at least initially, were a way to address that problem of our deceptibility. Trust me, I mean what I'm saying this time. I swear I do. But again, even as I say that, you recognize that in your twisted heart, which is just as twisted as mine, it takes all of a nanosecond for our hearts to go, hey, the very oaths that are meant to strengthen trust between people could also be used to trick people. Because right, as a kid, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, but what you didn't know was I had my fingers crossed behind my back the whole time, right? Like think about that for a second. That, that rule that we all, most of us learned as kids, that for some reason, if you cross your fingers, nothing that you say counts. You don't have to be held by any of it. I think that's, that's a pretty good way to look at what oaths had become in the first century when Jesus is addressing it. The way that the Pharisees and scribes had twisted what was meant to strengthen trust into actually a way to trick people. Later on in Matthew 23, we don't have time to look there this morning, but Jesus confronts the Pharisees for the way that they were using oaths. Again, basically as a way to trick people or to help people get out of commitments they no longer wanted to be held to. Like someone comes up to a, a Pharisee and says, help, I made this commitment to this guy however long ago. I don't want to be held by it anymore. I want out of it. Is there any way for me to get out of it? And the Pharisees would go, well, what exact words did you use when you made the vow? Did you swear by heaven? Then you have to keep it. Did you just swear by the earth? Okay, then you can get out of that one. Did you swear by Yahweh's name? You're bound by that oath, man, sorry. But did you just say, oh, uh, I more generically swear by Jerusalem or something like that? That's okay, that's kind of like you had your fingers crossed. You don't have to be held by that one. And you know what? If the other person didn't catch you when you said it, that's them, that's on them. That's their responsibility. And Jesus goes after him hard in Matthew 23. He says, you're blind guides. You think this is about the exact combination of words that you use and not about the intention of your heart and the words that you spoke? How blind can you be? In contrast to what oaths have become, again, look here. Jesus says, you've heard, don't swear falsely. If you made an oath to the Lord, you gotta keep it. But I say to you this, do not take an oath at all whether by heaven or earth, by the, the temple, by Jerusalem, whatever it is, by your own head. Basically what Jesus is saying is he says, in light of what oaths had become, this, this slippery, wishy-washy thing with a bunch of loopholes, don't even play that game. Don't even get into that. But you might be thinking in your head, because this is a thought I had, Jesus, if, if the whole purpose of kind of oaths, promises, vows was meant to strengthen trust between people because we are prone to deception, but you're saying not to use them, how do we strengthen trust between people? And I think Jesus would say, by being trustworthy. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Speak honestly and truthfully. I don't think Jesus is saying here, don't take oaths at all, so then you never have to be bound by anything that you say. Quite the opposite. I think he is saying you are bound by everything that you say. Stand by it. Whether it's the terms and conditions that you agree to every time you update the software on your phone. Whether it's the promises that you make to your children of what you'll do this afternoon. Whether it's the agreements that you make in business both before and after the contract is signed. I would say his principle is this. Think before you speak. Speak honestly and truthfully, and then stand by what you say. 
Not only when you use the formality of an oath or a vow, but every time you say yes or no. Later on in Matthew 12, Jesus will warn the people. He said, do you understand? People will stand before judgment for everything that they do, including every careless word. It's not only when you invoke God's name in a vow. He is witness to all that you say. And when we think before we speak, when we speak honestly and truthfully, when we stand by what we say, even when it's uncomfortable or inconvenient for us, that is what builds truth between people. That's what creates a contrast between the citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who are just participants in the kingdoms of this world. And I would say to you, our world is desperate to see this kind of honesty and faithfulness. And Jesus' point here in the Sermon on the Mount is that the world is meant to see what this looks like from us. That's what we are called to be as God's people. But let me ask you this for a second. Okay, because there's also a lot of groups of people throughout church history. A couple, one of them would be like the Quakers or the Friends group within Christianity who they take what Jesus says here in Matthew 3 and they say, if Jesus says don't take oaths at all, then that, that we have to take that absolutely. So no, we won't take marriage vows. No, if we have to give witness in court, you can't swear us in. They avoid any sort of oath or vow based upon the words of Jesus. I actually think that's a place where uh, they're taking what Jesus says in an overly wooden, literal sense. Let me explain. Remember, remember what Jesus is contrasting here. The way that oaths had been become with, in the hands of the scribes and Pharisees, something that was far more about trickery than truth. He's contrasting that and he says, man, don't even play that game. But remember this, before we as sinful humans perverted this idea, oaths were intended to be a way to strengthen trust. They were intended to be a way to mitigate and protect against the, the twisted way that we use our words. That's why we even see in the Old Testament law, which Jesus said he came to fulfill, a couple of places, like in the book of Deuteronomy, where God actually calls the people to swear oaths. And when they do it, use my name. In his, by his name, you shall swear. Again, not swear using God's name as a cuss word, obviously. Not that kind of swearing. But he says this, when you make commitments, invoke my name in the vows that you make, because I am trustworthy, I am faithful. And as one of my people, I am calling you to be like me. Reflect my character in your trustworthiness. What we also see in the Bible is that our God is a God who both makes oaths and keeps them. He makes promises and he keeps them. One of the clearest ones we see is in Genesis chapter 22. After Abraham had almost gone through with sacrificing his son Isaac like the Lord had told him to. And then the Lord spares him in the last second with that ram in the thicket. And God says to Abraham, because you've done this and have not withhold from me your son, your only son that you love. By myself, I swear, I will surely bless you and multiply you. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 6 reflects on this very oath that God makes to Abraham. And he says this, this is so instructive for what our heart ought to be in the, in the sense of when we make commitments to each other. He says this, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise 
For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. He's saying, idealistically, this is the way people do it. They, they make promises by one greater. They make sure and clear their commitments through oaths. And we see God adopt the same human practice, speaking to Abraham in language that Abraham could understand. Recognizing that Abraham and you and I are prone to deception and to be deceivers. And so what does he do? Verse 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that was set before us. Do you see the point? Why did God make, what was God's motivation in making this oath to Abraham? God knows that we struggle with trust. God knows that we struggle to be trustworthy. So he swore an oath to Abraham, not to trick him, not to leave himself a loophole, a way to weasel out of the commitment later, but so that Abraham, and not just Abraham, but he says, all who have fled to God for refuge might have strong encouragement to trust him. This is who our God is. And so as the people of this God, as citizens of his kingdom, we are to carry our words in the same way. Speak honestly and truthfully. Stand by what we say. So no, I don't think that it's always wrong for Christians to make oaths. Sometimes I think oaths, vows can be very helpful. They can give a sense of formality and seriousness to our words, especially in a culture like ours where we tend to speak really flippantly and sarcastically. We're almost expected to read the subtext in what we say. Oh, I, I know you said it like that, but I know what you really meant. There's a sense where it can clarify. Oaths can make our intentions, our motivations more transparent, not less. Also make sure that we acknowledge to each other the commitments we're making to each other. Again, not because I would say that an oath or a vow is meant to add weight or truth to our words, but because even the formality of is meant to represent the weight and truth that should always characterize our words. Does that make sense? So whether those are marriage vows, being sworn in a court deposition, if you were a, a, a doctor and you took the Hippocratic Oath, or a law enforcement officer taking the oath of your office, I don't think you violated what Jesus says here. The point is, stand by the commitments that you make. Take it seriously. Don't look for ways out of it. On the, on the flip side, whether you speak with the formality of an oath or a vow, it is always wrong to intentionally deceive people with your words. And it is always wrong to make a commitment and then go back on it later. Does that make sense? That's the purpose here. And I hope that you can pretty easily see the way that this idea connects with what Jesus says before it about marriage. Look again at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Remember, Jesus is confronting the way that the Pharisees were relaxing these commands. They were twisting 
the way that they viewed the God's law. And in some ways, what they said was in this idea of a certificate of divorce, like all you really need to break the commitment that you've made in marriage is a new piece of paper to counteract the old piece of paper, your marriage vows that you no longer want to keep anymore. Now, within the first century Judaism, there, there was kind of a spectrum of debate going on. There were some Pharisees who held a much stricter view of what this certificate of divorce was all about. They held that divorce was only valid if adultery had taken place. And if that takes place, you can break it off with this certificate of divorce. There was another group that held a much broader view that said basically divorce is valid for any reason, especially, well, I would say particularly any reason that the husband could come up with and you could send a certificate of divorce. And it's true because the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24, it does talk about this idea of a certificate of divorce. But we have to think carefully about this because unsurprisingly, the Pharisees and scribes had started using this concept of a certificate of divorce in a way that was totally different than God intended. The first thing that you need to know about this idea of a certificate of divorce, this is really important, understand me here. The certificate of divorce was actually provided as a means of protection for a woman. One of the clear themes that we see throughout God's law in the Old Testament is God's heart to protect the vulnerable. And in a time and place where there were very few rights that women had to ownership or to be able to provide for themselves, divorce, being rejected by your husband, would put a woman in a very vulnerable position. So this idea of giving her a certificate of divorce was to provide her with, with proof, with a way that she could demonstrate to others and particularly to perhaps another man who might consider marrying her to provide for her, a way to demonstrate to him that she was not going behind her husband's back. She wasn't cheating on her first husband. He had sent her away. So recognize that. This idea of a certificate of divorce was originally about providing protection for a woman where she would be really vulnerable to misuse. The second idea that's really important to understand is that the very place in the Old Testament law that talks about the certificate of divorce never commands it, never commands people to divorce. It simply regulated that practice and actually in a way that was meant to discourage or restrain Divorce, make people not want to do it in the first place. We see these themes throughout God's law that oftentimes we say, when I teach through uh, the biblical story, I talk to people about the purpose of God's law and we say there's three main purposes. One is to display the character of our God through, in the way that his people live. The second is to restrain our sinful hearts. And the third is to protect the vulnerable, those most prone to be misused by our sin. And we see the way certificate of divorce is meant to provide protection for the woman. It's also meant to restrain sin. Let me show you this. We're going to go for a moment back to Deuteronomy chapter 24 and take a look at this passage where the certificate of divorce first appears. And it's actually kind of a complex passage. I've highlighted the, the ifs and the ands to help you string together all of the ideas that are communicated here. Go with me on this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then... She finds no favor in his eyes because he had found some indecency in her. That was the point of debate in Jesus' day. What is this idea of finding indecency in your wife? One school of thought basically said, if she burns your dinner, you can send her away. What is it? We don't know, but just keep going. If he's married to her, but then he finds some indecency in her, 
And then he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs from his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and then the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, verse 4, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. Do you see, in this whole thing, the command doesn't come in until verse 4. And again, notice this. It is not a command to divorce, but instruction that if you do divorce your wife and she marries someone else and then he divorces her or dies, you cannot marry her again. That's the command. What's the point of this command? Simply this. Take your marriage vows seriously. Do not be flippant in making them or breaking them through divorce. Do not be flippant in marrying someone else after a divorce, divorce, especially because it closes off the possibility of reconciling that first marriage. Do you see that? Just like we saw with oaths, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs his disciples for the way that they're to operate and then later on confronts the Pharisees for how they twisted it. We see the same thing here with divorce. In Matthew 19, there's actually a, a dialogue between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees on this very issue. It's got, probably going to be about a year before we get to Matthew 19. So it's worth us taking a moment to look at it today because it really helps to fill out what, we're, what we need to understand from here. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Genesis, or Matthew 19, or if not, just follow along with me here. The Pharisees come up to Jesus. This is in the last week of Jesus' life as he's holding court in the temple courts. And the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees are just peppering him with questions to try to catch him and trap him in his words. And they come up to him and they say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? See what they're doing? Which side of the debate are you on? Are you on the strict view or the broad view? Well, Jesus answered them. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's quoting from Genesis 2 here. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is God's intention from the beginning. One man, one woman, one flesh, until death parts them. This is God's intention. And Jesus says, if that's what God's joined together, don't separate it. Well, they go, then why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Deuteronomy 24, we've read it too. What was that about? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Do you see what Jesus says about this whole idea of a certificate of divorce? First, notice the different word that he used to describe it than what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees said, why did Moses command this? And Jesus says, it wasn't a command. It was an allowance 
a permission that was given. That's an important distinction. This isn't something God said to do, but he said, okay, in these circumstances, you may. And why did Jesus say it was permitted for them? Because of their hardness of hearts. Stop and think about that for a minute. He says, from the beginning it was not so, but this was an allowance given because your hearts were hard. And what's the whole point of this whole section of the Sermon on the Mount about? How Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. If you were with us last Sunday, you know Todd started out by showing us that video from the Bible Project about the purpose of the law and the prophets. How all the way through in the law, it was talking about the people's need for new hearts, transformed hearts, because their hearts were hard. And throughout the prophets, there was this repeated promise made that one day God would solve the problem of our hard hearts. We've looked at this one the last couple of weeks, so I won't read it to you. But again, in Ezekiel 36, we find this glorious promise that this new covenant, this new commitment between God and his people that Jesus would bring would be a covenant that would actually fulfill that promise. It would change our hearts, remove our hearts of stone, give us hearts of flesh, not only that, put the Holy Spirit of God himself to dwell within us. Why? So that he might cause us to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Jesus, listen to me, Jesus came to fulfill that promise. Not to leave us in a hard-hearted condition, but to actually transform our hearts. Through his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, by which he has, as Paul says it, or Peter says it in Acts 2, he has now poured out the promised Holy Spirit to live in those who follow him. We are not, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are not a hard-hearted person anymore. Amen? So let's bring this together. What's the point? Hear me carefully on this. If as Jesus says here in Matthew 19, the certificate of divorce was allowed in the law because people's hearts were hard, but Jesus has come to fulfill the law and bring the new covenant that can actually change our hearts, then if you are a follower of Jesus, you do not need the allowance for a certificate of divorce that was given to hard-hearted people in the Old Testament because the Spirit has changed and is transforming you. Does that make sense? Again, if not, if you have a whole bunch of questions, we will have opportunity to dive into that in more detail in various ways in the life of our church. But if the Spirit of God is at work within us, we can pursue what God's intention was for marriage from the beginning. From the beginning, he made the male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what God has joined together, we do not separate. Put simply, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are married, and as Jesus clarifies here, the biblical idea of marriage is between a male and a female, one man, one woman, one flesh, until death parts them. If you are a Christian and you are married, whether you made those vows in a courthouse or a barn or like most people do in California, outdoors somewhere, 
If you went to a chapel in Vegas, if you stood right here on this stage and made those vows like my wife and I did almost 17 years ago, God has joined you and your spouse together as one flesh. Don't separate it. Don't separate it. Stand by your vow, the oath that you took for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, in poverty and in wealth, to love and honor and cherish for as long as you both shall live. You can do it. Not through your own strength, but because of the very promise that we just read, God has given his spirit to transform us and lead us into this way of life and faithfulness. And our world is desperate to see this kind of faithfulness in reality. And they are meant to see it from us. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. <sighs> nice light message for the week before Christmas, right? I've truly been praying and asking God to just guide my words. There's so much more that we could go into. You may even have a bunch of questions about what is this whole exception clause that Jesus uses here in Matthew 5 and 19. Man, there, that's, this is one we're really gonna hope to dive deep into when we get into the podcast. Because one of the biggest questions that comes into our minds when Jesus uses this idea of accept on the ground of sexual immorality, he uses it both in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19. But the crazy part is, if you flip over and you see the comparative passage, the parallel passages in Matthew and Luke, or in Mark and Luke, they don't have that exception clause. You see that? In both Matthew 5 and 19, he says there's this exception for sexual morality. But then in Mark and Luke, he just says, any remarriage after divorce is adultery. What do we do with that? How do we understand what this sexual immorality idea is all about? There's a lot of debate that's gone on through church history about what this means. And I guess you could say there's two main views. Let me just give them to you now. It's just, a, I don't want you to feel like I'm dodging this point, but we will go into much more detail in the podcast. There are basically two main views on what this exception clause is all about. One view, which is by far the most common view, at least in the US, is that the exception clause for sexual morality is basically talking about the same thing as adultery. Basically this, if your spouse sins sexually with someone else, they have committed adultery and you now have biblical grounds, as people often call it, to divorce them and marry someone else. Even though that is the most common view, I, I, I think it has a number of problems with it. Not least of which is the fact that it doesn't make any sense with what we saw in Mark and Luke. There's a second view, which though it's much less popular, it's the view that I, I currently hold, but I hold it graciously because I know it's one that Christians honestly wrestle with. The second view basically sees it like this. The sexual immorality that Jesus is talking about here, because he uses a different word from the word adultery, he must be talking about something different. And the best idea that I've found so far of what this could be talking about is Jesus is talking about sexual sin that comes to light during the period of betrothal, when a man and woman have agreed to be married, but they have not made their marriage vows yet. 
In our culture, we call that engagement, but our concept of engagement is much more uh, less formal than what first century Jewish betrothal meant. It was actually like an agreement typically made between the man and, and the father of the bride. It was formal, set out in writing, and could only be broken by a divorce. A different kind, it's the same word, but a different kind of divorce than the kind of divorce that would take place after the wedding ceremony. Does that make sense? And in this view, what Jesus is saying is that if sexual sin comes to light while you're in that betrothal period before you're married, you can break off that betrothal through a divorce without a later marriage resulting in adultery because you were not officially married yet. Might sound really confusing and convoluted, which is why we're gonna do a podcast, but let me just show you one example of where we may see this in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter one, verse 18, classic reading. That will, might, we might even read that on, on next Saturday night on Christmas Eve. The birth of Jesus happened this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they'd entered into that binding agreement to get married. But before they came together, they were not married yet. They were betrothed. What happens? Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant. And before the angel comes and clues him in on what's really going on with this child, that it was from the Holy Spirit, the only way the math made sense in his head was she had committed sexual immorality. She had been unfaithful to me during this betrothal period. She had slept with someone else. That's how she was pregnant. And what does he conclude in verse 9? Being a just, a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly. Wait, divorce? They weren't married yet. Yeah. They were betrothed. Could it be that this is what that exception clause is referring to? That seems again to me to be the best way to understand this. If the person you are betrothed to in Jesus' day, if the person you're betrothed to commits sexual sin, you can break off that betrothal without a later marriage to someone else being adulterous. Again, we'll dive into much more of the details of that when we, when we record our podcast. We'll even dive into 1 Corinthians 7 where, where Paul says a lot more about what marriage and divorce looks like, especially in situations where one spouse is a follower of Jesus and the other is not. And there's much more to walk through. I know there, there's, these words come with baggage for so many of us, but if you will, let me take the last couple of minutes that we have and bring us back to the main point of these two sections on oaths and divorce. When it comes to the oaths, the commitments that we make, including the commitment of marriage, as apprentices of Jesus, as those called to live as a contrast community of salt and light in the world, as those whose stony hearts have been changed. Those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells to transform us and empower us to live the life that Jesus is calling us to. Church, let's honor our commitments, amen? Let's think before we speak. Let's speak honestly and truthfully. Let's stand be by what we say, whether we say it with the formality of an oath or just a simple yes or no. Let your yes be yes. Let our no be no. Let our I do's be I still do till death do us part. So help us God, amen? Amen. When we fail, when we hurt each other, when the feelings of love ebb and flow, 
try to stand by commitments, but we couldn't measure up to it. I love what Todd said last week. We remember, we confess, and we repent. I remember what I said. I'm not trying to get out of it. I'm sorry that I failed. Please forgive me. Can we build trust again? When we fail, remember, we are apprentices of a savior who showed us what long-suffering love looks like, who showed us what reconciling love looks like. We follow a savior who knows how it feels to be betrayed, who knows how it feels to faithfully love his people, though they are serially, repeatedly unfaithful to him. Did you know that that's what the story of Christmas is all about? Yes, Jesus came as the baby in a manger, but he came as the baby in the manger because he came as the rejected husband to reconcile and win back his wayward bride. We've talked a lot in this sermon about this idea of the new covenant. And I love the way that Jeremiah 31 talks about this new covenant as a reconciled marriage, a reforged commitment that had been broken. I love this. Let me read this to you. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. I was faithful to them. I kept my word to them and they broke it. But God doesn't stay there. A new covenant is coming. And here's what it's going to be like. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their people. They will be my God. I'm sorry, other way. I meant that the other way. I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor or each his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, because I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is our God, church. He calls, he reconciles, he forgives, he restores, and he calls and empowers us to follow in his footsteps. So if divorce is part of your story already, understand this. There is forgiveness in Jesus. There is forgiveness in Jesus. If you were on the receiving end of a divorce that you did not want, understand Jesus knows what that feels like. Read the, the Old Testament prophet Hosea. If you're already divorced, do not rush into another marriage, especially because it closes off the opportunity to reconcile your first marriage. If you're already remarried after divorce, then seek to live out Jesus's command to faithfulness in this marriage that you find yourself in now. If you're currently contemplating divorce, listen to me carefully. Stop, consider, Pray, seek counsel. Take Jesus' words here seriously. Resist the temptations that the Pharisees and scribes fell into to relax it, to fit what you want. 
As I just said before, there is absolutely forgiveness for divorce in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But be very careful. Do not presume upon the forgiveness of God as justification to willfully disobey what Jesus says. A thought that often pops into people's minds as they're contemplating and thinking about divorce is this idea that doesn't God want me to be happy? I'm not in this marriage. Doesn't God want me to be happy? And I would say, yes, he does want you to be happy. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. Do you remember how this started? Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The, the lifestyle that Jesus calls us to here in the Sermon on the Mount is the way to true and lasting happiness. He says at the end, it is also the hard and narrow path that few find, but make no mistake, it is the path that leads to life. The words of Jesus may be hard for you to hear this morning, but remember this, these words are spoken by one who knows you, who loves you, who knows what's best for you. He is not trying to trick you or set you up to fail in what he says here. He is trustworthy. Will you trust him even in hard places? The last thing I wanna say is this. If you're in danger, if you're thinking about divorce right now because you are in danger from an abusive spouse, hear me carefully, do not stay there. Do not stay there. Don't feel like the words of Jesus command you to stay there. Seek safety. Our God cares deeply about protecting the vulnerable and we as your church family do too. Let someone know, let someone here know so that we can help you find safety. Involve the authorities if need be. Come talk to someone at the prayer room. Let us help you get to safety. And then let us as your church family help you walk through what to do with these marriage vows that you have to someone who's a threat to you. Again, if you need prayer, this is why we've got folks that would love to pray with you up in the prayer room. I'm gonna pray over us now to wrap up this message. I'm gonna ask the band to come back up. We're gonna sing one more song to this Jesus, this baby in the manger who came as the reconciling husband to make us a faithful people. Would you pray with me to that Jesus? Jesus, we exalt you as the great shepherd of the sheep. We exalt you as the faithful one Thank you, Jesus, that you don't pull punches. You don't lower the bar for us. Instead, you empower us by your spirit to walk faithfully with you. Yet we confess to you, we don't do it perfectly. We are often flippant with our words and our commitments. We often do speak out of turn and then wish we could go back. Jesus, would you forgive us? Would you teach us? Would you show us by your example you mean what you say and you stand by all that you say, including the promise that if we, are, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all righteousness. So would you lead us that way in your people, not just for our own personal happiness, but that we might truly be a community that shows salt and light to the world. Would you do this by your grace and for your glory, we pray. Amen.